This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, my job, at the beginning at least, is a little um, simplified because of the talks you've, you've heard from uh, already, especially from uh, Rick and from uh, Veland. Uh, as you all are well aware, the human brain is the largest among uh, primates, living primates. Uh, but I just wanted to emphasize it's not the largest uh, mammal brain. Uh, elephants and whales and cetaceans have larger and also more highly folded cerebral cortices. But uh, in terms of brain number in the cerebral cortex, neuron number, uh, humans have the largest uh, total number. And so my area of interest, similar to uh, Whelan's, is uh, one of the more obvious features of human brain is its size and the number of cells. And that brings us right to the issue of where they all come from, which has been, as you hear, a sort of an interesting problem or a central problem uh, for many of us. Uh, The developmental stages are clearly where we'll find the answer to how that happens. And in my lab, we've been uh, looking at human brain development uh, through the second trimester, which is when most cortical neurons are are developed. And a cross-section through the developing cortex uh, looks very different in humans than it does, for example, in mouse, which is the uh, animal system that most uh, neuroscientists have used to study early stages of brain development. So this is the cross-section of the mouse, and you heard from Veland very beautifully how there are apical progenitors, which we call radial glia, shown here in red, marked by SOX2, one of the transcription factors that they express. And their daughter cells are these intermediate progenitors that line up uh, right above them in the subventricular zone. And the beginning, the middle, and the end of neurogenesis in the mouse looks just like that. In the human, it starts out very similarly. There are radioglial cells and intermediate progenitors uh, forming these two layers. But then very rapidly, the subventricular zone undergoes this enormous expansion that you've heard about and becomes an outer subventricular zone shown here. And all of these colors represent cells that are cycling. They're producing daughter cells. And you may notice the ventricular zone at this stage becomes very small. And so the majority of cortical neurons at these stages almost certainly are coming from this zone, not from the ventricular zone. And moreover, this isn't the end of neurogenesis. This is halfway through gestation week 17 when the middle layers are being formed. So the middle and upper cortical layers are presumably being generated by the cells in this outer subventricular zone. But the actual nature of those progenitors really hadn't been studied Uh, And so we looked at it in a variety of ways. Uh, First, I want to show you how dynamic this area is. In this case, we're looking at the outer subventricular zone in a slice culture where we've labeled just uh, the progenitor cells in green. So there are neurons that you don't see. But the progenitors are highly dynamic. And when we look at them more carefully, we find two classes. And one that I really want to emphasize is this one. It's a radioglia-like cell. Uh, It has this uh, process that goes up to the peel surface, which is the basal fiber, but it doesn't have an apical contact with the ventricle the way the epithelial cells or the ventricular or apical radioglia do. Otherwise, it looks just like a radioglial cell. It stains with all the markers that you normally would see in radioglial cells, and if you backfill the surface of the cortex with a a label like this, the di crystal, it fills the fibers of these cells that end in cell bodies in the outer subventricular zone. These cells hadn't been described at the time, and so we call them outer subventricular radioglia-like cells, or ORG cells. And as you heard, uh, Veland calls them basal radioglia. They're the same cell type, and they're enriched, it turns out, in the human uh, uh, developing brain. Now, we've looked at them dynamically, and we're struck by a behavior that hadn't, hadn't been seen before. These are four of the cells uh, that are labeled in one uh, slice of cortex, 
And as they divide, you may notice how they sort of jump and divide. And if you didn't notice it in those images, I hope you'll be able to see it in the single cell. Because as they go through M phase, the actual cytokinesis stage when they divide, they jump first and then undergo this cell division or cytokinesis. Very distinctive behavior that hadn't been described before. And so we called it mitotic somal translocation, MST. And it was one of the defining features of these cells because there were no specific markers that we could use to distinguish them from the traditional ventricular radioglia. But when we looked for them in other species, and this is in the mouse, we found them there as well. And if you watch this cell, it's a, what we call now a mouse outer radioglial cell. And you see it goes through a little jump, much more modest than the human cells. It has this basal fiber, and it's located in the subventricular zone if the mouse had a subventricular zone. So these cells are present in small numbers in the mouse and are usually expanded in, uh, in primates and especially in humans. Are they neurogenic? Do they actually make neurons? And to test that, we actually dissociated uh, cells from the progenitor zones, labeled them with um, a, a virus marker that actually just infected progenitors, and then put a single progenitor in each of multi-well plates. And here's an example of a single one of the progenitors in this well, and a higher magnification view is there. And then we time-lapsed image the behavior. And you can identify the outer radioglia by their first division. They put out a primary process, just like they would in, in, uh, in C2, and then they jumped and divided. And that made that cell uh, classified as an outer radioglia. And we had other cells that rounded up and divided. Those were the intermediate progenitors. And we looked seven weeks later in culture at what the clones were like. What, what does a single outer radioglial cell actually produce, at least in vitro? And the answer was really surprising. The cell I just showed you, after seven weeks, had produced a clone of at least 700 cells, which included neurons of both deeper and upper cortical layers. And in this clone, there were no astrocytes. And some of the clones were additionally astrocytes plus neurons. And, and this is an enormous output of, of cells. If we do the same experiment with a radioglial cell in a mouse, we get 20 to 40 cells after a month or so. So 700 to 1,000 cells from a single outer radioglial cell, I think, underscores how enormously uh, proliferative these cells are. And so it helps support uh, this model, which is still a work in progress, of what we think makes the human cortical development distinct, say, from the mouse. And in the ventricular and subventricular zones shown here, we think it, cells in the human behave very much like the mouse. But what makes the human so distinct is the outer subventricular zone, which is filled with these outer radioglia that are born initially from the ventricular zone and move away, and they go through these multiple self-renewing asymmetrical divisions, producing these daughters, shown here in green, which are transit-amplifying uh, progenitor cells. And they actually divide symmetrically at least twice. We, we know they do that more than once, producing clones of cells, which then have the same birth date and migrate, therefore, to the same cortical layer. And over time, uh, one of these ORG cells will produce multiple clones of cells in multiple different layers. And the radial fibers support neuronal migration. So that allows an increase in the cortical size tangentially as well as radially. So we think this cell is very important for cortical uh, expansion, both developmentally, as shown here, and also in, in evolutionary terms. But as I said, we had no markers for these cells. We had no real idea of what made them distinct molecularly from uh, the ventricular radioglia, for example, in the mouse. And so what we took as an approach for this is single-cell RNA sequencing. So we dissociated early cells, shown here, took those individual cells and collected them in microliter uh, uh, f 
tiny little uh, nano-sized uh, 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 capture sites in a chip, a microfluidic chip, which is made by a Fluidime Corporation. And when they're captured in these little uh, sites, you can then do uh, lysis and reverse transcription and amplify them and then sequence the genes for each individual cell. And that's in an unbiased way. That is, we take all comers and see what, what those gene uh, differences look like. And here's an example of a heat map where we have the cells in all these rows and genes in columns. And you can see how they cluster according to the genes that they express. And that allows us to identify uh, molecular characteristics of specific, specific cell types. And just to look at some of the progenitors, and this is when we first did our initial study of about 300 cells that were captured this way, uh, we can see three different cell states. Uh, here in the lower left are the radioglial genes, the, the ones that are most enriched in radioglial cells. In the brackets are the intermediate progenitors, which are the daughters of the radioglia. And then here on the right, in the upper uh, side, are the enriched genes, mostly in young, immature neurons. And what this shows us is that some genes that are uh, initially expressed in the radioglia persist in their daughter cells, the intermediate progenitors, and genes that are expressed in those progenitors persist uh, as neurons are produced. And this is very useful, in a way, because it helps us watch the lineage of these cells. So example, shown here, actually uh, confirms what we saw from the time-lapse imaging. Radioglial cells shown here on the left, producing intermediate progenitors that then generate neurons. And these are some of the genes, both known and, and new genes, expressed at each of these different stages. And we confirm the expression of the new genes by in situ hybridization shown here in slices. Genes that we predict would be expressed in radioglia are located here at the ventricle. The genes expressed in intermediate progenitors or radioglia, uh, outer radioglia are expressed here and then the neural, neural genes are expressed in the cortical plate. Now, not only did this give us uh, an idea of uh, the transition or lineage of cell types, but it gave us insight into activated gene networks that might actually be signaling individual cell types. And to focus on the outer radioglia for this talk, uh, these are all uh, schematically shown genes that are coherent in networks expressed exclusively by outer radioglia at these early developmental stages. And one of those uh, gene networks and pathways is the LIFR-STAT3 signaling pathway, known to most stem cell biologists as an important self-renewal pathway. So we find that these outer radioglial cells are actually able to self-renew themselves and create their own niche. If we inhibit this pathway, as shown here in these graphs on the lower right, uh, we significantly inhibit uh, the generation of the radioglial cells, but not the intermediate progenitors, or for that matter, the ventricular radioglia. So it's selective to this one cell type. And it helps support an idea, shown here, uh, that distinguishes the human from the mouse. In the mouse, as you know, uh, as we just heard, they have radioglial cells and intermediate progenitors, and the radioglial cells lie in the ventricle, where they can receive trophic factor signaling from the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. In the outer subventricular zone, the cells have actually moved away from the ventricle, and they're not able to, to access the growth factors in the CSF. But instead, they develop their own signaling pathways. They can produce their own growth factors, and they create their own niche for self-renewal and expansion. And we think that that is one of the reasons, of course, that these cells were able to undergo the kind of prolonged and, and massive uh, proliferation that I've shown you and that, that Wieland mentioned just earlier. We've also gotten some insights into diseases, and I just want to mention two of them very quickly. One of them is, uh, is this. And as I just mentioned, these outer radioglial cells make their own niche, and, and they have factors that pr promote uh, self-renewal. And when we looked at all these genes in the literature, we found that they'd all been reported earlier or already discovered in this particular kind of a tumor, the glioblastoma multiforme, which is a terrible and inoperable 
brain tumor found in adults, not, not in children. But when we look carefully at the published single-cell uh, heat maps like this one for radioglial genes, uh, rather for, for genes that are expressed in tumors uh, as well as radioglia, we, we cross those reference points, we found that, in fact, that the most aggressive glioblastomas were enriched in the same genes that we found in the outer radioglial cells. They had apparently an outer radioglial cell signature in the most aggressive grade of glioblastoma. So then we looked in uh, surgical specimens that we got from our colleagues at UCSF, sectioned and stained and and cultured them just like we had uh, primary tissue. And shown here are glioblastoma cells from one of the uh, patients. And focus your attention on this cell um, as it uh, undergoes division. I hope you can see it. Yeah, there it is. Watch that one. There we go. Right. So you may have noticed how it jumped and divided, exactly like the fetal cells do in, in C2. So it looks as though we have outer radioglial cells in these glioblastomas. And in fact, uh, that work has progressed to the point where we now have uh, good evidence that these may be the, the uh, cells of origin for these very aggressive uh, glioblastoma tumors. Uh, the next slide... Uh, which has to do with microcephaly. And microcephaly, of course, is a condition where the brain is uh, orders of magnitude smaller than it would normally be. Um, and the most dramatic cases of this occurred in Brazil uh, uh, last summer when there was an outbreak of Zika-induced microcephaly. But initially, it wasn't clear that the Zika virus was producing the, the microcephaly. Um, we were struck by the fact that uh, literature suggested there was one specific factor that mediated the entry of the Zika virus into the skin, and that was something called the AXL receptor. And our data set from the outer radioglia we've been talking about and the other cells in the developing brain is shown here for all of the receptors known to mediate entry of flaviviruses. And the Zika virus uses the ones shown here with the black dots to get into other cell types. And I'll emphasize that the AXL receptor, which mediates Zika entry into other cells, is highly enriched, but only in certain cells in our data set. Shown here, it's enriched in astrocytes, in radioglial cells, not in intermediate progenitors, not in neurons, not in interneurons, and also in microglia and endothelium. It has a very specific pattern of expression, which we predicted might be the tropism of the virus as well, that is, the virus would enter the cells that express that receptor. And so we managed in collaboration with Joe DeRisi to get active virus from a patient who traveled to San Francisco from Brazil, and he was donating blood, and the blood actually turned out to have active virus. So we cultured the virus and exposed our tissue sections. And shown here in green is the uh, Zika virus reproducing in cells in the outer subventricular zone, uh, which included the outer radioglial cells that I've been talking about. It seems to be that they're a very favorite target of the Zika virus. So shown here, in fact, is the outer radioglial cell packed with the viral uh, particles just prior to rupture. So these outer subventricular zone cells are specifically and especially vulnerable to infection with the Zika virus. And when these patients are born with microcephaly, it makes sense, of course, that the neural progenitor cells might be selectively affected. And there's much more that goes on in this devastating condition than just infection of these outer radioglia, but this seems to be part of the, of the picture. And we also took advantage of the fact that uh, AXL, we hypothesized, was uh, mediating entry of the virus to block it with a variety of different chemicals and antibodies. And shown here is an example of a chemical block of, of the AXL receptor. And these are uh, cultured human cells that are exposed to the virus. And the green dots are the cells that are actually infected with the virus. And if you block the AXL receptor, as shown here on the right, you can significantly reduce the cells uh, that get infected. 
uh, confirming that the AXL receptor is, is probably mediating entry into these, at least these human cell types. Now, I was very interested, as I mentioned earlier, to find markers or genes uniquely expressed in these adorative glia that we could use as a tool to try to f- learn more about the cell types. And we were very gratified in our first 300 cells that we were able to do that. Shown on the left are uh, novel markers that express themselves only in the ventricular radioglia, shown here. And on the right are the more interesting to me, uh, novel gene markers that uh, are expressed in outer radioglia only. And we justified, or rather, we validated these markers, uh, first by showing that they, they stain cells with the morphology and location of outer radioglia, but also dynamically, we watch cells in our time-lapse imaging jump and divide, and then we fix them and stain them with these markers to confirm that the cells that were jumping were, in fact, expressing uh, these outer radioglial markers, and they were. So this gives us now a whole new set of tools to start looking at these outer radioglial cells. One of the first things we noticed uh, challenges, or I should say modifies, this classic model of human cortical or primate cortical development that Pasco Rakic proposed, known as the radial unit hypothesis. Uh, very influential and, and still very, very uh, uh, concise explanation of how radial units form and how they multiply uh, over time and also of evolution. And I want to emphasize the radioglial scaffold here, which are all these fibers that go from radioglia down here to the cortex, along which neurons migrate. And the model proposed that this uh, scaffold persists throughout cortical development. And we were struck when we had new markers, as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, that there seems to be a discontinuation of the radioglial fibers at later stages. And that was uh, evident from these two cell uh, markers. In red, I'm showing you uh, HOPX, which is a gene expressed throughout this uh, outer radioglial cell cytoplasm. And you can see red fibers that you can trace all the way up to the peel surface. In green is CRIA-B, which is a marker that our data suggested was only in ventricular radioglia, and the green fibers only went uh, up to the outer subventricular zone and never went further at these later stages, suggesting that these fibers and these fibers were discontinuous. And we checked that in a different way by using dye-I, which is a a lipophilic dye that that can be transported along radial fibers. And if we put those crystals on the top or the bottom of the slice, either way, we were able to show these continuous fibers at ages up to around gestational week 16. But beyond that, the picture was quite different. If we put dye at the surface, it backfilled fibers only to the outer subventricular zone where they ended in outer radioglial cells. And if we put the dye at the ventricle, it only uh, went generally as far as the same outer subventricular zone, suggesting a kind of a, uh, a handoff of cells from one zone to the other. And that led to this model, which is a uh, model that suggests that the second half of neurogenesis, the upper cortical layers, are produced by outer radioglia, not by these ventricular radioglia, which now have transformed into truncated radioglia. So we think there are three kinds of radioglia in cortical and human cortical development. And uh, we've now expanded our single cell analysis to all these different cell types. Uh, it's given us an idea not only of uh, the diversity of cell types that are produced in the human brain compared to the mouse, Uh, But we've also identified uh, uh, unique markers uh, for each of these different cell types at different stages of development in different brain regions. And um, one of them I want to mention is DAB1, which is a relin effector. Uh, It's found in radioglia at the ventricle and the outer radioglia, but not in the uh, truncated radioglia, which would be here. And what's interesting is that these two cells have fibers that go all the way up to the PIA where they can receive relin signaling, and the TRGs don't. So it very nicely justifies or validates the discontinuous uh, glial scaffold model that I showed you earlier. 
Um, and then I just wanted to summarize the points that I've made so far, that the developmental evolution of these three neural stem cell types, the ventricular, outer, and uh, truncated radial glia, we think uh, help understand the expansion and organization of cerebral cortex, that the outer radial glial cells are enriched in self-renewal and proliferation genes, um, and that has led to some uh, disease-associated effects, and that the mechanisms for human developmental and evolutionary brain expansion could be co-opted in uh, disorders like brain tumors and could be targeted in disorders such as microcephaly. And finally, I want to thank all the people who did the work, uh, especially Aparna, Alex, and Tom, very gifted postdocs. Alex and Tom are setting up their own labs now at UCSF and are sponsoring organizations. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.